0: At every festive season, there's always one question that comes up on social media and elsewhere. Did Oliver Cromwell ban Christmas? We asked eminent parliamentary historian Stephen Roberts to tell us whether this is one of the many myths that have blackened Cromwell's reputation or whether, in fact, it's really true. As he explains to publisher Mike Gibbs, the answer is... Maybe yes, and maybe no. Stephen,
1: let me begin by asking the big but simple question. Did Oliver Cromwell ban Christmas? True or false? Well, Mike, the easy answer
2: is to say no. But as we'll probably discover in this podcast, there is a slight element of truth in it, as there is with all these hoary myths that we read about.
1: But Protestants were very suspicious of Christmas and other festivals, including Easter. Why was that? Well, Puritans
2: derived their ideas from a very literal and close interpretation of the Bible. A Puritan was one who did nothing without the authority of the Bible, and they could find no evidence in the Bible for the popular festivals. So without scriptural warrant, as they would have said, The festivals inherently were suspicious, and that's the main reason why Puritans didn't like festivals. They were also against disordered kinds of behaviour because they were very disciplined people, so perhaps instinctively they disliked any sense of
1: disorder in any realm of human activity, really. Before the civil wars actually started, there were suspicions being voiced by extreme Protestants And one man, uh, William Prynne, became the loudest voice. And he seems to have led an onslaught against the whole idea of Christmas. And I believe in one pamphlet termed it the pagan saturnalia. Can you tell us about him?
2: Yes, William Prynne was a, a Somerset man who early on discovered the value of print. He was an indefatigable writer, and he understood the necessity of getting his words into print. He was called Marginal Prynne because of his all the marginalia in his books. He was an astonishingly prolific author who pulled no punches at all, and in 1632 wrote a book called Histriomastics, in which he denounced Christmas, among other things. This is what Prynne has to say.
3: Effeminate mixed dancing, dicing, stage plays, lascivious pictures... Wanton fashions, face painting, health drinking, long hair, love locks, periwigs, women's curling, pouldering and cutting of their hair, bonfires, New Year's gifts, May games, amorous pastorals, lascivious effeminate music, excessive laughter, luxurious disorderly Christmas keeping and mummeries.
1: When this was published in 1632, it was seen as a direct attack on the royal court and, I guess, the king, but Prynne paid a heavy price.
2: Yes, indeed. It wasn't so much what Prynne had had to say about Christmas that offended the king. It was the fact that he'd mentioned the theatre and stage plays in this pamphlet. And Henrietta Maria, Charles's wife, was a fan of the stage herself and did a bit of what we would call amateur dramatics, at court. So it was taken as a personal attack on the king, and Prynne was punished very severely by having his... He was put in the stocks, he had his ears mutilated, his tongue bored, and was then, from that point on, regarded as a Puritan martyr,
1: and capitalised on that later in his career. And what was the public response to his mutilation?
2: Well, from the public at large, probably indifference would be the best word, but for the Puritans, it hardened their opposition to Charles I, and Prynne really became a Puritan martyr, a symbol of suffering. And his sufferings during the 1630s were taken as symbolic, really, of the sufferings of Puritans in lesser ways throughout the decade.
1: And looking at Parliament's reaction to all of this and to... Christmas as so a festival. How did that evolve after the Civil Wars started? Well, of course, after the
2: Civil War started, Parliament's rule was restricted. It wasn't able to command authority throughout the country. So, Christmas, as with all other Puritan bugbears, was really on their wish list rather than a, a thing they could immediately implement. So by 1644, Parliament was in a position to introduce some legislation about Christmas. And the order of the 19th of December, 1644, by both Houses of Parliament, sums up the mindset of Puritan opposition to Christmas because it's based on the premise that the religious observance of the festival had been degraded and that contemplation of sin and the work and significance of Jesus Christ had been supplanted by what they called, quote, carnal and sensual
1: delights. I guess that sort of response would be voiced by some people today. And was this the majority view amongst members of Parliament?
2: By this time, probably yes, because by the late part of 1644, the Royalists as such had peeled off to join Charles I. So what we've got in Parliament is a diminishing number of people with much more in common than they'd had at the start of the Civil War in Parliament. It did represent Puritan opinion, and that's
1: another reason why this legislation could be passed, because the opposition had disappeared. And Parliament itself, at one stage, was meeting at Christmas. Was that altered?
2: Parliament did continue to meet throughout the 1640s and 50s on these days like Easter and Christmas, And in fact, there's a particular case in 1656 when Parliament met on Christmas Day. And by that time, of course, Christmas was certainly subject to Puritan legislation. And the MPs on Christmas Day in 1656 were disgusted to see the shops closed because they thought it should be a normal working day. And some MPs on their way to Parliament on Christmas morning noticed that the shops were closed which went down very badly with them. And one MP wanted to bring in that very day a short bill to back up the anti-Christmas legislation. But fortunately, perhaps, it got sidelined and nothing more
1: came of it. So they just sat on their indignation for the whole day and went home. In 1645, Parliament legislated a new directory of public worship as a replacement for the Book of Common Prayer, How did that affect Christmas?
2: Well, the new Directory of Public Worship was what we would call today a Presbyterian document, and it did embody all the kind of Puritan notions of plainness and simplicity and so forth. It didn't say anything specifically and explicitly about Christmas, but what it did say was this, that the festival days, vulgarly called holy days, having no warrant in the word of God, are not to be continued. And that was as far as it went. For the Directory. But the Directory wasn't really an actual replacement for the Book of Common Prayer in that the contents of the Directory weren't to be read out in the way that the prayer book contents were. The Directory was really a kind of handbook for ministers of religion on how they should do things. But it was explicitly ruling out the possibility of Christmas as it had been conceived before.
1: Was there a particular group within Parliament who were driving that legislation through?
2: Yes, by this time Parliament is divided, even on the Puritan side, into the Presbyterian group who were very much in favour of the um, Directory of Public Worship and they had support from the Scots who were this time still just about in an alliance with Parliament. And then on the other hand, people who weren't so keen on the Directory, the Independents as we call them, whose idea of religion was based on congregationalism, not on the idea of a national church so much as independent congregations. And interestingly, Oliver Cromwell is one of these independents or congregationalists. In 1645, Cromwell was not a particular fan of the Directory of Public Worship. So in that sense, he wouldn't necessarily have been delighted at the Directory. He's one of those who were critical and suspicious of it, because he was not a Presbyterian, really.
1: And did he actually speak against it, or was he just silent?
2: Silent and lukewarm, I think you could best describe Cromwell's attitude to all this at this time. He's very suspicious of the Scots and everything associated with them in terms of their military exploits as well.
1: So at this time we can't quite accuse him of banning Christmas. No, in
2: 1645 Cromwell isn't really one of those who can be said to be dead opposed to Christmas.
1: And then in Parliament in June 1647, they passed an ordinance which really did ban Christmas, is that correct?
2: That is the legislation that really comes closest to this ban on Christmas. But it was never conceived even then as a ban of Christmas. It was something more positive. It was replacing Christmas with holidays as we would know them today. Masters were encouraged to give apprentices days off. And the legislation said that a master should give his servant recreation time every second Tuesday in the month. And the legislation talks about giving the servants and apprentices quote, relaxation from their constant and ordinary labours. So in getting rid of Christmas and Easter and Whitsuntide and other festivals, which the legislation calls quote, commonly called holy days, Instead, they've been supplanted by what we would call holidays, and presumably that means
1: paid holidays. But I guess, given the reputation of the London apprentices, they weren't going to church. They would have been celebrating.
2: Well, we don't really know about that. I mean, you can see how servants used to making merry on Christmas Day would have not welcomed this legislation. But on the other hand, it did give them a kind of security, supposed to have given them a kind of security of holidays that... They never had before. So this legislation, in my view, should be seen as the first holidays rather than the last Christmas.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And what steps, if any, did Parliament take to actually enforce this legislation?
2: Well, we don't know much about the enforcement, but what we do know is that Cromwell was actually involved in this legislation. He was on a committee in April 1647 for this legislation. We only know about five things that Cromwell was doing in Parliament at this particular juncture, and this is one of them. So those who think Cromwell banned Christmas at this point do have a bit of support for that thesis, really.
1: And what was the reaction to the ban in the country itself?
2: Well, we do know that there was a reaction to this. There was, for example, in St. Margaret's Church in Westminster, a minister tried to give a Christmas sermon in sixteen forty seven and was prevented from doing so. And then someone wrote a pamphlet about that called The Stillborn Nativity, because it was a you know a failed Christmas sermon. And more dramatically, in Canterbury on Christmas Day sixteen forty seven, the townspeople assembled to demand a sermon, which the mayor had forbidden. And then there was a heavy-handed response towards the crowd in Canterbury, which produced a riot. So that was a particularly noteworthy case of active opposition to the Ordinance of 1647.
1: And was that reaction a contributing factor to the start of the Second Civil Wars?
2: I think it could be seen in that light because it is the case that in Kent, Canterbury there, uh, Bury St Edmunds in Suffolk, and in Norwich, these were all places of... Christmas protests in 1646, 1647, around that time, and there are places where there is activity in the Second Civil War, so there may be a link there. I don't think historians have been
1: able to trace it exactly, but it could well be an element. Against this background, can you summarise the evidence that Cromwell wanted to ban Christmas?
2: Well, Cromwell is in his early career politically quite a shadowy figure. And it's always hard to associate an individual like Cromwell with a particular bugbear-like opposition to Christmas. It's only in 1647, really, that we can say that he certainly is involved in legislation to ban Christmas as we know it. But again, it's not quite fair to Cromwell to see him as anti-Christmas. It's more of a focus on a regularisation, really, of time off by apprentices and servants. And I'd prefer to see it in rather more positive terms than simply the doer, Puritan, suppressing fun. I think there's something progressive, I think you might say, about some of this. It isn't all just negativity.
1: How and when did the myth that Cromwell banned Christmas gather acceptance?
2: I think the first thing we have to say about that is Cromwell is made to do duty and to stand in for the whole Puritan ideal in these discussions. He's probably the only Puritan that most people have heard of by our own days, as it were. So he becomes a symbol of this whole idea, I think, that uh, one person could have been involved in banning Christmas. It's Puritanism that's really the motive for these restrictions on Christmas, And I think one of the things that strikes me about this is that we shouldn't be so much looking at the banning of Christmas in terms of chronology and the myth of the banning of Christmas, but the invention of Christmas in the Victorian period. Because as we know, Charles Dickens and others in the Victorian period have invented the kind of Christmas we enjoy today. And if you look at the work of Thomas Babington Macaulay, He published five volumes on the history of England in 1848, tremendously influential volumes. He has this to say on the unpopularity of Christmas as it was banned by the Puritans.
3: All men should pass the day in humbly bemoaning the great national sin which they and their fathers had so often committed on that day by romping under the mistletoe, eating boar's head and drinking ale flavoured with roasted apples. No public act of that time seems to have irritated the common people more. But has this
1: fixation contributed to the way in which Cromwell has been memorialised?
2: Well, I think Cromwell's memory generally in popular culture, the public view of Cromwell, is of somebody who was negative and destructive. So when people think of Cromwell, they think of his power, they think of his capacity to command armies. He's often credited, for example, with smashing up things in churches. People say, Oliver Cromwell did this damage and so forth. And again, he's made to stand-in for destructiveness... The root of it is probably the fact that Cromwell was ultimately the loser in this country politically. Had the Cromwellian regime persisted, I think our public memory of Cromwell would have been very different. So I think it's all to do with the way that history tends to favour the victors in the end.
1: How has this helped the folkloric memory of Cromwell as a destroyer, do you think? Is it a strong piece of evidence?
2: Well, he's associated with the destruction of Christmas. He's associated with the destruction of churches, as I said. Most of the folkloric evidences of that negativity. And there are stories about people in the 19th century threatening their naughty children with a visitation from Oliver Cromwell, you know, that kind of thing. It's all fed into this bogeyman image of Cromwell, I think.
1: And finally, in 1660, at the Restoration, was Christmas restored to its old pre-Civil War celebrations? Well, in
2: 1660, what was obviously restored was the Church of England, as it had existed before the Civil War. And also, of course, the prayer book came back. So it did mean that in terms of religious services, that Christmas Day is back on again. The general culture of the Restoration was one of celebration, was one of relaxation and the sense that something grim had been put to bed. And so with all this attempt, rather unconvincing attempts in some way, to uh, plaster over the differences that had been so important and so divisive during the Civil War, in that attempt came back Christmas. So, yes, I, I think it's, it is probably true to say that the Christmas revels, the Saturnalia, as Prynne would have called them, did come back.
1: So I, for one, will be enjoying the Saturnalia of Christmas this year, and I hope that you and your family, Stephen, have a really Merry Christmas.
2: Well, thank you very much, Mike, and Merry Christmas to you.
0: You can find many more programmes by eminent historians exploring the complex and often controversial life of Oliver Cromwell at our website worldturnedupsidedown.co.uk They investigate and evaluate the sources to separate the truth from the myths about one of the most recognisable figures in British history. We regularly release new talks and interviews, so to ensure you don't miss any of these programmes, subscribe to our newsletter, The World Turned Upside Down. Just click on the button on the website or in the show notes. Meanwhile, all of us wish you a very happy festive season and we look forward to bringing you many more fascinating programmes in the new year about the time when the world was turned upside down.